HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Gastronomica now has its own feed on the Heritage Radio Network. If you've been a fan of what we were doing on Meant to be Eaten, check out our new Gastronomica feed on your favorite platform and subscribe to stay updated on our newest episodes. is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Jacqueline Rowell. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our spring 2022 issue, now available online, features articles on foods on the move, exploring issues of power, authenticity, and emotion. Join us as we talk with authors and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. Our guests this week are Professor Kristen Moon from the Department of History and American Studies at the University of Mary Washington, and Professor Jennifer Rohde Ward, Professor of Biology at University of North Carolina, Asheville. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks so much. So let's begin. Can you tell me about your research backgrounds and where you're located? Yes, I'm Jen Brody Ward. I'm a professor of biology at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. And my research focuses on population dynamics, reproductive biology, and genetics of plants. And my real focus is on imperiled species, as well as taxa of medicinal and culinary interests. So I've done some work on American ginseng, as well as on ramps. And as Jackie mentioned before, my name is Kristen Moon, and uh, I'm in the Department of History and American Studies, and I actually teach American Foodways as part of one of our interdisciplinary seminars and have done extensive research on ethnic identity and uh, immigration history. Uh, this project also, I did want to point out, has two other authors, uh, Jose Vasquez and uh Jorge Foyo, both of whom are uh, in Havana. Uh, Pepe, who is Jose Vasquez, um, he's actually senior faculty at the University of Havana, and he specializes in environmental sustainability, sun and beach tourism, and freshwater fisheries. And then Jorge does work in environmental sustainability uh, and marine environments. So we're a pretty diverse crowd. (laughs) 
Absolutely. And so you uh, have just published an article in um, 22.1 of Gastronomica titled Food Access, Identity and Taste in Two Rural Cuban Communities um, with your research team. Can you tell us what motivated the project? How did you come to work on it together um, across these disciplines? So Kristen and I first met in December 2015. We were on a trip to Cuba that was sponsored by the Council of Public Liberal Arts Colleges, or COPLEC. And on this trip were 22 faculty across disciplines, including life sciences, social sciences, and humanities. And there were folks from 15 different institutions. And because we were in this cross-disciplinary group and because we were hearing group lectures from all different sorts of um, academic disciplines, it let us think really creatively about Cuban studies. So Kristen and a colleague from UNC Asheville, um, Greta Troutman, and I began to brainstorm ways to fund an examination of Cuban food ways, something that really intrigued us from those lectures and from our experiences with food in Havana. We applied for and then received grant monies from the Christopher Reynolds Foundation, which funds Cuban studies. And as a follow-up to that, as well as trying to plan some study abroad, Greta and I visited Cuba and we met Pepe and Jorge there, and they were extensively involved in the La Picadora Agricultural Collective, which is one of the fo foci of our study. And they also were familiar with this town of Yaguajay, which is a coastal city near there. So Pepe and Jorge's scholarly experience as university faculty, their familiarity with the communities in central Cuba, and... Um, their just openness to different sorts of explorations led us to ask them to be part of our collaboration. And this particular project is, uh, it, it's a larger project than this uh, one article, although the article that we're talking about today focuses explicitly on taste. Can you tell listeners what you mean by taste? How are you thinking about taste as a concept when you first set out to do uh, this, this work, this part of the project? You know, ironically, when we started out on this project, we weren't thinking about taste at all. We were thinking about sustainable agriculture and agroecotourism and how what was going on in central Cuba could be a model for other parts of the world. However, once we started doing interviews with farmers and fishers in Yaguajay and La Picadora, we realized that there was a pattern emerging in, with some of our questions. And that actually led us to reflect on what we had experienced once we came back to the United States and to start to realize that, in fact, people were talking about food preferences in ways that didn't necessarily align with the common theoretical framework of taste put forward by Pierre Baudot in Distinction. And so we decided to sort of explore that particular issue. So it, it's almost like serendipity, actually. We, we had an experience with our oral histories that led us to more questions and then turned to the theories that were popular uh, within the study of foodways and, and cultural production writ large. Interesting. And so you mentioned that uh, you mentioned oral history and fieldwork research. So can you tell us a little bit more about that process? Who did you talk to, generally speaking, and, and where and why? So 
it was actually a, a, an interesting and complicated process because, of course, we had two scholars in the United States and two scholars in Cuba. And so one of the first things we had to grapple with was creating a consent form, which is a common practice for oral histories in the United States, but it's not that common in Cuba. And so we had to work together to sort of come to a common understanding that we wanted to make sure our subjects understood that there was a process of consent that they could or did not have to participate, that they could also be anonymous if they so desired, et cetera, which is also why uh, we did not use any people's names in our, in our essay. In addition to that, we also had to write our questions. And the question process was also really illuminating for us because we had two very different communities we wanted to focus on. One were fishers, one were farmers. So we had to make sure that we had questions specific to both groups, but yet would be in conversation with each other. So Jen and I actually worked on Google Docs for that. And then we would have to email those questions to Pepe and Jorge, and they would read them and give us feedback. And then we would re-tinker with them and then just continue working through our questions and what made the most sense based upon Jorge and Pepe's experience and knowledge. And then once we got on the ground, we even continued to do that sort of back and forth tinkering with questions that we were going to ask both our farmers and fishers. Um, it actually is really illuminating and it was a lot of fun in the end. Thanks, Kristen. And I think you highlight some of the uh, opportunities and also challenges of uh, globally based collaborative um, collaborative research um, and, and the way that you um, approached it in this particular project. So uh, why farmers and fishers? Uh, why farmers and fishers? Well, part of that was, of course, driven by the fact that Pepe and Jorge already had relationships with farmers and fishers in Yaguajai and in La Picadora, but also because of those relationships that it allowed us to really connect in a way that I think for, especially for American scholars, um, might struggle with connecting with people on the ground. And in particular, so I think, you know, that that relationship that they already had really facilitated the process. But the second part is farmers and fishers are so instrumental and foundational in terms of food systems in Cuba, but oftentimes scholars, both in Cuba and throughout the world, they focus on big cities like Havana and not necessarily rural areas like Santa Spiritus uh, province, which is where Yaguajai and La Picadora are located. And so we wanted to bring communities that are underrepresented to the conversation about food and identity uh, and sustainable uh, food ways, such as farming and fishing. So there, it's really a twofold uh, process for us. And so you were looking at uh, the rural communities in central Cuba. Uh, can you tell us more about some of the crops and foods that these regions have commonly provisioned? So like much of Cuba, these regions from the time of colonization until the 1959 revolution were growing a lot of sugar, primarily for export. And even after the 1959 revolution, the local residents were continuing to work in sugar mills or continue to work in the fields growing sugar cane for export. In the early 2000s, the central government of Cuba began to shut those government controlled 
production um, mechanisms, including the mills. And so a lot of local folks found themselves with different sorts of employment situations. Um, so they began to grow more, more crops just for local consumption. And it's interesting, even though Cuba as a nation has a lot of seafood export and um, provisions a lot of seafood for tourist industry, this region, Yagua High, was never a big commercial fishing hub. Um, even in the town now, there are only a few people who fish for the government. So fishing in that area was primarily always for local consumption and consumption within a family, really. Sometimes those um, marine products are bartered or traded with one another, but it's, it's really just for families to um, feed themselves. Interesting. So um, were there, and one of the things that, that I found really interesting in your articles is you highlighted the the ways in which local foodways, production and local foodways also intersects with um, recreational practices um, rather than uh, commodity uh, commodity production. Um, right. A lot can you of, say more about that? Yeah, a lot of folks talked about how much they enjoyed fishing and it was a family activity and it, it was indeed for provisioning for their households, but also just something they really enjoyed. And folks who were growing fruit for their own personal consumption in both communities talked about really enjoying the process of gardening and having being able to get fresh fruit at will from their yards or nearby spots. And what kind of uh, fruits, going by the example of fruits or, or fish, um, were really common um, within yeah. those communities? Mm -hmm. So the fish that were most common were um, mostly fish that could be accessed from shore or from pretty shallow areas. Um, most folks in that community, even though it's a coastal community, don't have access to boats. So there was one person whom we interviewed who had access to a government fishing boat. And there were some folks who sort of shared small boats that could go just a few hundred meters offshore. So the the fish that people were most commonly accessing from shore were mostly snappers, so little fish in the snapper family, um, mostly a fish called pargo, which is a mutton snapper. Um, not so much the things that Cuba is known for, like spiny lobsters. That wasn't a big part of the fishers that we talked to, part of their diet or part of their recreational activity, in part because those commodities are tightly controlled by the central government as something that's exported. And so um, there are restrictions on um, non-commercial fishers in their catching of things like spiny lobster. As far as fruit, people grew a wide variety of things. Some of the commonly grown things were mangoes and citrus fruits and um, mamies and, Kristen, can you help me, papayas? Bananas. Bananas. Oh, yeah. A lot of bananas. <laughs> a lot of bananas. <laughs> um, what about vegetables? I, I noticed that uh, fresh vegetables were not part of the regular culinary repertoires, um, at least in, in the research that you wrote about in this particular piece. Could you elaborate on that? Yes. Vegetables were mostly grown as sort of a, um, a condiment or something to add to meat or put on the side of a dish. 
Um, and this is part of a larger trend in Cuban cuisine. So going back to interviews from the early 1980s, um, uncooked vegetables in particular, but vegetables in general, uh, are not a central part of folks' diets throughout the nation. Um, so there was a, a researcher named Nelson Lowry who did research in the 1940s in Cuba. So this is pre-revolution. And his quote was, the green and yellow vegetables, which are important sources of vitamins, are almost totally absent from the rural diet. We noticed that as well. And so there really isn't um, much culinary history of including vegetables. And it, they are not, they're not grown much. So people grow peppers, um, people grow tomatoes to use in, um, in their cooking, but not a lot of green vegetables. We did interview a few folks who talked about their love of salad and also attributed that to interactions with tourists. So they had not had like green salads as a side dish until they learned that habit or observed that habit as a result of interactions with tourists through agro-tourism stays. If you'd like to hear the rest of our conversation with professors Kristen Moon and Jennifer Rohde Ward, and stay tuned to future episodes, subscribe to our new feed called Gastronomica. The Gastronomica podcast is where the academic field of food studies meets a public appetite for gastronomy and the culinary arts. Links are in the show notes.